You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for biohacking women over 50. I'm your host, Zora Benamu, a digital nomad, certified sports nutrition and breathing coach, and master student of gerontology at the University of Southern California. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan, the cookbook Eating for Longevity, and a new upcoming program, Energy Reboot for Women 50+. Plus. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and I would totally appreciate it if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcast to help others find us too. This is a small but very critical gesture that makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for older women and to help us grow stronger and really get our voice out there and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. Hello, age disruptors. Today, I'm recording this podcast with a live studio audience. All of you attending this recording now are members of the Hack My Age VIP program. And part of being in this exclusive club is the ability to dial in and watch the interviews as they are recorded. And you can ask your own questions. If you want to be a part of this amazing community, go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age and sign up not only for these cool interviews, but so much more. Before we start, I am so excited to announce that I have been invited to speak at the Biohacking Congress in Boston on June 11th. 2022. And I'm going to be speaking about a topic that rarely gets attention in the biohacking community, and that's biohacking for women who are over 50, which looks at the specific health needs and the solutions for older women. And I'll be giving hacks to this audience that is often overlooked, but this is also valuable insight to the younger biohackers about what they could expect for their future selves. So join me on June 11th and get your tickets at biohackingcongress.com and use the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, for 20% off both the live and virtual congresses. I'll also include a link in the show notes for you, so don't worry. And if you can't make it in June, there will be many other amazing speakers at the biohacking congresses in Las Vegas in March and Miami in October. And you can still use that discount code Zora for those events too. So today you may learn something that just may change your life. So pay real close attention to my guest, who is someone who absolutely humbles me. And you have no idea how honored I am to have Patrick McEwen on the show. So some of you listening here are already familiar with him, or at least with his work. But many of you also may have never heard of what Patrick has really helped bring to the forefront what is starting to go mainstream, and that's breathing technique or breath work. And uh, Patrick McKeown is an international breathing expert, and he's an author based in Galway, Ireland, um, but he is really so much more than this. And, and he really, in my opinion, should be given an honorary doctorate because he has researched breathing so intensely. And he's even published a study in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. And he, he really sounds like a PhD when you listen to him. And he, he clearly knows much more about the breath and breathing mechanisms than most doctors. So Patrick has been studying 
the respiratory system and breathing for the last 20 years, probably even more. <laughs> and he's not only experienced in training the elite forces and Olympic coaches and athletes and thousands of clients and, and even trainers, um, but now breathing practitioners. So he's also a best-selling author, having eight books under his belt now. So he's an avid writer. And in 2015, he wrote The Oxygen Advantage. And this is the book I first encountered when I, when I learned about his work. And this book is where he focused on addressing dysfunctional breathing patterns to really revolutionize how we are training. But last year, he released two new books, The Breathing Cure and Atomic Focus. And we're going to talk about these books, but in the context of the older woman. So we're going to focus on specific chapters related to issues like sleep disorder, breathing, insomnia, and sleep apnea. And these are really big ones for women who are hitting menopause and even way after. So now without further ado, meet Patrick McCune. Welcome. Thanks very much, Sora. Good to be here. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. You're on like a billion and one podcast. So <laughs> you've carved out. I appreciate the time you, you've given to me. And, and, and before we start, uh, I really have to mention a couple of things. And I never go off like this before I in, invite a guest, but I have to, to share a little bit of a story because I am a student who passed through your online instructor program. And I'm so glad I did. And I chose this program over many others. I did all this research and I was really looking for a program that was evidence-based on the science of breathing. And there are many programs out there, but nothing really resonated with me as strongly as the oxygen advantage. And the reason I decided to even go down this path, especially when I have zero time as a grad student with a full-time business, uh, it's because I have this client. Uh, she's always a 56-year-old woman from the Philippines who wanted me to teach her about breath work every day, twice a day. And this woman was in a lot of pain with endometrial cancer. And she woke up six times a night to pee and, and she was just absolutely miserable. And after the third day of teaching her some exercises, I turned on the Zoom meeting and I thought I made a mistake. I really, I couldn't recognize the person in front of me. And, and she looked at me straight in the camera and she had a bright smile and she was full of joy. And I asked her like, what happened? And she said she could finally be pain-free. And she says, when the pain comes, I do what you taught me and it goes away. And she went from waking up six times to five to four. And then, you know, very, very, very rarely. And now one year later and several hundred classes later, she's cancer free and attributes a lot, not all of it, but a lot of her healing to her breath and how she learned how to breathe. And I was absolutely shocked. Um, I I've read about this and, you know, hear about it, but when you experience it with someone else or even yourself. It really was, was shocking, especially in that third day when she was, she was a completely different person. And I just had to find out what in the world was happening to her physiologically. Like, why did this happen? How did it happen? I knew it worked, but I wanted to understand the mechanisms. And that's why I chose the oxygen advantage. And, and now I understand why. But what was really mind-blowing is that as I went through this program, and I learned from Patrick here as, as well as from other master instructors. And, and now many, many months later, I am amazed at how much Patrick and his team continue to give to the instructors more master classes, more training, more information, 
all without an extra cost. So this is really unusual for any program. And, and his team has just been so incredibly supportive and answering all my emails and helping me grow as an instructor and content creator. And, and the whole Oxygen Advantage community is amazing. And I hear the same from all the other instructors that I connect with. So I know it's not just me. We all agree this is the best program to learn simple breathing techniques to empower people to take control of their own health. So I really, this is my own you know, heartfelt, huge uh, gratitude to you and your team. And I'm just so grateful. So thank you so much for, for all that you do. Oh, you're very welcome. It's great to hear because sometimes you don't always know how, how well you're doing. Um, but we have a great team, so you know I'm only a small part of it, and it's been it's been very good. Well done. Well, has his own challenges too, but we're getting there. You've done a lot of great work, and we're so so appreciative of it. So you are an incredible researcher, and and you've completely immersed yourself into the science of breathing. And can you share with us just briefly, like what brought you to this world twenty odd years ago, when no one was even talking about breathing and, and breath work? Yes, I suppose it's it's not an occupation that you're going to advise your your child to go into, and it's it's way left of field in terms of a career path. I just came across by accident. I had asthma, I had a stuffy nose, I don't diagnose sleep disorder breathing. I'm not unique. There are millions of children in the same position. I left school at 14, never to go back. I just felt totally disillusioned with the whole education system sitting in school for six and seven and eight hours. And I'm pretty headstrong. So when my mind was made up, my mind was made up. I did go back to school a year later. I had a goal to get into a university. Only one in Ireland that I wanted to get into was called Trinity College in Dublin. And I worked pretty hard to get into it. It could have been a lot easier. So when your concentration is impacted, your sleep is impacted. When I was in that increased fight or flight response because of mouth breathing and upper chest breathing, and uh, the education system, I feel, has really overlooked this and overlooked it with millions of children. I started, it was from a newspaper article. So I read a newspaper article about a Russian doctor, Konstantin Buteko, and he said, breathe through your nose. He said, breathe light. I was doing neither. It always sounded as if I was heavy breathing. I always had my mouth open, waking up with a dry mouth. Terrible dental health. I'm sure as uh, Dr. Jones is going to testify to <laughs> mouth breathers coming in. Don't necessarily, you can, I'm sure many dentists, at least dentists who are clued in will spot the mouth breather a mile away because all they have to do is look into the mouth of the mouth breather. Yeah, I put it into practice, or it was really, really powerful for my own health. Tremendously powerful in terms of sleep, in terms of asthma, in terms of life becoming a little bit softer. I don't think I had ever anxiety or panic disorder, but I would have been a bit highly strung. It really made a fundamental difference. I left the corporate world then. How old were you back then? I, mean, I was 26, is... 25, 26 years of age. So I'm 20 years teaching it full-time now come March 17th. So yeah, <clears throat> I left the corporate world and I trained then in breathing and I made it a full-time career. I was lucky. We got, I got so many breaks. Hmm. You know, when I look back, it was going absolutely insane. I had no capital from a business point of view. I had no money starting off. I opened an office with no money. You know, you'd never do these things, but it all fell into place. I got my first three clients from... Galway Advertiser newspaper wrote an article. I kind of wanted to get breathing out there because I knew it worked and I knew it worked for me. And when I met with the Asthma Society of Ireland and I said to him, listen, I said, I've had asthma for 25 years and this has made a dramatic difference. That was the word I used, a dramatic difference to my asthma. No interest. You're kidding. And none of these organizations had any interest. So 
I was met with total resistance pretty much all the time. And I wanted to get out there. How can I get it out there? Because the people who have the power to do it don't want to know about it. So that's why I started writing books. And I wrote the first book in 2003 because I reckon, let's put the information into a book and somebody can buy a book for 10 or $15. And there's no risk on their part. And they buy the book, they see the information, they put it into practice, and then they will tell other people. And that was the whole modus operandi. And it kind of worked in a slow burner for 16, 17 years. But <laughs> the last three years that it's taken off, it's been absolutely phenomenal, you know? That's a, yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. The, the book is a good place to start. I recommend a lot of people to, to check out some of your books. And I, I, they really are life-changing. And, and honestly, any age with nearly any kind of issue can, you know, from diabetes to COVID can really pick up, say, the breathing cure and, uh, and find something for them. And, and I really like the breathing cure. It's, it's, it's like a Bible. I mean, I have it. Have it right here. If anybody's watching on the YouTube or you have uh, here on the call, you see it is just, it's a great reference. And you actually, I think every sentence there has got a medical reference or some to a but research we paper. We have to do it because if you think breathing has been around for hundreds of years, thousands of years, but why is nobody taking it seriously? No. It has been the way it has been taught. It's been taught in by left of field, woo-woo science. We don't have all the science, but we need to support it where possible. So the people teaching breathing have let it down. They haven't showed it its full potential. Like I'll give you an ex the example. Yoga studios throughout the world. Millions of people going into yoga studios. Can you imagine a student going in there with asthma, panic disorder, anxiety, depression, PMS, all these common symptoms? And imagine if the yoga, the yoga instructor was versed in assessing for breathing pattern disorders. And not only that, but guiding the student through breathing from a number of different dimensions, not just telling the student, take these full big breaths. Sometimes the yoga community gets up in arms when I talk about that, but they've, they've taken control of the breathing technique. They've taken control of breathing. And most of them have done a bad job of it. And I'm giving out here, but I'm giving out because something has certainly held it back. And we had to get out of that. I had to get away from left of field. Writer field didn't want to know about it anyway. So we went somewhere in the middle. That's where we are. So, you know, I put breathing for the people inside an atomic focus and we wanted to get it out there. And that's why we touched on some topics as well, you know, diabetes. You know, I think the overall, if I was to say, if somebody was asking, what is the one thing you can do in terms of your breath? You can influence your autonomic nervous system and you can help to bring it into balance. Mm -hmm. And that, that is taken into consideration sleep. And it's also taken into consideration, of course, the autonomic nervous system, because whenever we are either physically or emotionally unwell, we are tipped into this fight or flight response. Now, what are the best techniques for helping to restore balance? It's not medication. It's actually getting right to the direct root cause of the autonomic nervous system. And that's your breathing. And I'm not saying, of course, there's a role for medication. But, you know, if you look at the, the baroreflex in individuals who are not well, They've reduced sensitivity. Maybe you want to explain what the baroreflex is. The baroreflex or the pressure receptors in the major blood vessels in the aorta and the carotid arteries. Mm -hmm. These pressure receptors are continuously monitoring your blood pressure. And if blood pressure increases, the baroreceptors should be responsive enough to detect the change in blood pressure and send a signal via the brain to the blood vessels 
so the blood vessels can dilate and the heart rate can come down so that blood pressure can normalize. And conversely, if blood pressure drops, the bioreceptors should be responsive enough to detect this change and immediately send a message via the brain for the blood vessels to constrict and the heart rate to elevate. And it's the sensitivity of the bioreflex which is influencing vagal tone. And that can be measured then via heart rate variability. In other words, if the heart rate, it doesn't just beat with the same timing. You know, a person who is well-balanced during the inhalation, during rest, the heartbeat speeds up a little bit. So the time between beats is a little bit shorter. And during the exhalation, the exhalation should be one and a half times the length of the inhalation. And during the exhalation, the timing between heartbeats increases a little bit. So the heartbeat should be a little bit faster on the inspiration and a little bit slower on the exhalation. And that can imply good balance. And it's not just about when we, when people talk about heart rate variability and everybody is wearing devices now and it's so popular out there, <laughs> the device gives you feedback, but how do you influence it? And even in this field, what's been overlooked was the, is the importance of nasal breathing during sleep. Because I don't think if we can get, if we don't have good sleep, forget about everything else. And if we do have insomnia, looking at the instance of insomnia in the population, it's 30% of the adult population and 10% of the adult population have chronic insomnia. Yeah. And then if we look at the male population in terms of the instance with sleep apnea, and then in females, post-menopause is increased by 200 to 300%. So if we have sleep disorder breathing, that's going to automatically put us into that fight or flight response, into that increased sympathetic drive. And then we can be doing whatever we're doing during the day, but we're having sleep disorder breathing at night. It's not targeting it. We have to address the sleep disorder breathing. That should be number one. And yeah. then breathing itself and breathing anyway. You know, when you start improving your breathing during the day, you'll actually improve your breathing during sleep because sleep disordered breathing, the name breathing is in sleep disorders. But yet we don't look at breathing. The medical establishment looks at the CPAP as the first gold standard of treatment. You put on a CPAP machine, it works, but 50% of people can't tolerate it. So now you've got 50% of the cohort with established obstructive sleep apnea, and they can revert to mandibular advancement. But of course, there's some issues with that in terms of pressure on the TMJ, the temporomandibular joint. So there's no solution that's perfect and breathing isn't perfect, but breathing is something that can play a role. Absolutely. You, you've mentioned the hitting the autonomic nervous system, touching, getting, influencing vagal tone, lowering heart rate variability, lowering, I mean, sorry, increasing heart rate variability, lowering heart rate. And I, I just had a client yesterday who was trying to help me figure out her aura ring. She just got this and she, she's very high strong. And I said, you know, let's do a little session right now. Let's see how this affects you. She'd only wanted to do it five minutes. Didn't have much time, but she, she saw her and I, and I walked her through some of the, the, the techniques that I've learned from you and her heart rate variability started to go up. Okay. You, you can see this. I measure this every day. I, I meditate. I do my breath work and I measure there's a, if you have a device, a bio strap or, or the aura ring or stuff, you can literally see your, your heart rate coming down and the heart rate variability in five minutes. I mean, it's, that's, you know, usually it's about a minute. That's the minimum you can do on these devices. And so if you, the longer you do, you see this go up. And every time I measure, I'd say eight out of 10 times, it's like that. My heart rate comes down, heart rate variability goes up. And so this is 
this is the end of one experiment that is the most interesting for you, right? Who cares what a study says if it doesn't apply to you? And that's why I encourage people to use their devices if they have them. But you see, you feel much more calm after doing some breath work. And what I love about what you're teaching is it's functional breathing. This is not just let's take five, 10 minutes out of the day and, and learn how to breathe. You know, it's something we incorporate in the, for the rest of our lives, because you could have many different types of breath work for different purposes. And that's fine for the one hour that you're learning how to do that. But what do you do the other 23 hours of the day? And that's why I love what you're doing, because this is what will have the biggest impact. It's not what you do once in a while. It's what you do regularly that will make change in your health. So with the, with your, um, with the focus on say an older woman, you, you touched a bit about, um, you know, sleep disordered, um, breathing and insomnia. These are real issues that, that women have. And, and I think one thing that you've, you've mentioned was that sleep disordered breathing increases by 300% post-menopause. And when you talked a little bit about the baroreflex too, like all of this stuff is very concerning for women who, you know, heart disease is, is what is the biggest killer, right? So we need to, to focus on things that can help us lower that risk. So 300% post-menopause, that's huge. Can Let's explain a little bit what is sleep disordered breathing and then why are these post-menopausal women so vulnerable if we if we even know? Because as you said, there's mentioned before, there's, there's not a whole lot of studies out there. This episode is sponsored by Primadine, a supplement that if I had to choose only one, it would pretty much be this one. It's because Primadine is spermidine. And this has been shown to activate autophagy, which is super important. And it's basically a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. When we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and a lot of waste, and this isn't really great for us. So we need to clean it up. So if you want some research, go to primadine.com and you can see all of it supporting cognitive health and heart health, hormone balancing, and long and strong hair, nails, and eyelashes by using spermidine. So another very important reason why I love primidine in particular so much is that I've never had received ever as much feedback about a product as I have with primidine. Literally several times a week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And most of the time it's about improved sleep. So I can honestly say that I can 100% be convinced now that primidine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on primadine.com. And that's P-R-I-M-E-A-D-I-N-E.com. Now enjoy the show. Sleep disorder breathing can encompass different forms. It can range from insomnia to snoring to upper airway resistance syndrome to obstructive sleep apnea. Insomnia is either difficulty falling asleep. And that can be due to overstimulation of the mind. And it can have a psychological element. You know, any of us who have had a stressful day, it can be difficult to switch off at night. And breathing exercise can play a role with this. The ones that help you to downregulate. Nasal breathing during sleep is very, very important because when you breathe through your nose, the resistance to your breathing during the day by breathing through your nose is two to three times that of the mouth. 
In other words, when you breathe through your mouth, when you breathe through your nose during the day, your nose slows down breathing, which is very important for mental states. But during sleep, your mouth imposes a resistance to your breathing. That's 2.5 times that of the nose. And during sleep, you don't want resistance to your breathing. You want that air to travel freely into the lungs. But if you have a compromised airway, or say, for example, anatomically, if your mouth breathing is kids, which increases the risk of having a high palate, narrow jaws, infringed nasal cavity, deviated septum, jaws that are set back, and a smaller airway. So a double chin, for example, my jaws are set back. A double chin is not just aesthetically not pleasing to look at, but functionally it's not good because a double chin is telling us it should be a health warning. You know, the jaws are not far, far forward enough in the face. And a good airway is the size of our tongue. But if we have a compromised airway, so for example, the soft palate where it can fall back into the throat or the tongue or the epiglottis, or we can have collapse of the throat itself. And if we have a partial collapse of the throat during sleep, and if blood oxygen saturation drops by three to 4%, that's called a hypopnea. Now, what doesn't come on the radar, though, is often upper airway resistance syndrome. So upper airway resistance syndrome is when there's a resistance to your breathing during sleep, but it doesn't, doesn't meet the criteria for a hypopnea. And then an apnea. An apnea is when you stop breathing for 10 seconds or more. But there's problems even with the AHI, the apnea hypopnea index, because you could have an individual who stops breathing for 10 seconds, and that's one apnea. But you could have an individual who stops breathing for 90 seconds, and it's still one apnea. Mm-hmm. You could have an individual that their blood oxygen saturation is dropping down to, to 85%, it's an apnea. Or you could have somebody who goes down to 60%, still one apnea. So, you know, even the hypopnea, like it's, it was kind of arbitrarily ch- chosen when your blood oxygen saturation is dropping down by three or 4%, why three or 4%? Why not 1%? Why not 2%? Why not 5%? Like, what was this figure about? So I think, you know, in terms of sleep, I suppose as human beings, we need to be really cognizant of how we feel when we wake up in the morning. And none of us should be tired at 10, 10 a.m. None of us. We should, we should have absolute brilliant energy at 10 o'clock in the morning. If you don't have it at 10 o'clock in the morning, there's a problem. And 25% of people, though, with sleep disorders don't necessarily feel sleepy and they can fall under the radar. And 50% of individuals with obstructive sleep apnea are not obese. Now, normally an individual might go to their GP and they might say to the doctor, they're tired and the doctor sees this this big overweight person and the doctor saying, yeah, alarm bells. But when 50% of the population with sleep disorders aren't obese, maybe the doctor doesn't see alarm, you know, it doesn't see a risk signs for sleep disorder breathing. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think the dentist is the best person that's positioned to identify for the risk factors. And I'm not just saying it because Casey is here, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I spoke about it in the book, The Breathing Cure. And the reason being is because we all go to our dentist every six months or so. And the dentist can spot for the, the jaws that are set back and the scalloping of the tongue and the high palate. And these are the anatomical issues, you know, and the dentist also can be very clued in in terms of watching the patient's breathing when the patient is lying down on the, on the chair, you know, because, mm-hmm. okay, the patient might be a little bit stressed and their breathing might be a bit harder and faster. But yeah. at the same time, when the patient settles down, paying attention to their breathing pattern, and if you see a fast breathing pattern in an upper chest, the dentist will spot if the patient is mouth breathing because the, the mirror is going to get fogged up because mm-hmm. the person is breathing onto the mirror. 
So there's all of these little telltale signs, but how many people go into a dental surgery and they go in with sleep disorder breathing and they go back out with sleep disorder breathing and no attention paid? So I gave out initially about the yoga community and now I'm giving out about the dental profession. Not all, of course, not all yoga instructors. There's some absolutely amazing ones out there and not all dentists and orthodontists. There's some absolutely amazing ones out there. But coming back to females, so you might ask like, why is it when a female goes through menopause and you know nobody even seems to know the exact criteria of when this is going to take place so it's when the female hasn't had their period for 12 months or more i think the average age is about or median age is about 51 years it seems that progesterone helps to protect the upper airways from collapse with younger females mm. and then when progesterone levels off that there is an increase of sleep disorder breathing but also of course what happens is when we hit 50 as i'm there myself we start putting on a bit of weight. So we put weight on the throat and we put weight on the, we put fat on the tongue. We put fat on the throat. So the airway gets smaller, but we also put fat in the belly, which impinges the movement of the diaphragm. And the diaphragm breathing muscle is mechanically linked with the upper airway dilator muscles in the throat. So we have to think of it as one airway. So we have a group of muscles in the throat, which are designed to help keep that airway open. And I think there's 20 muscles in the throat. And it's a subset of these muscles that are responsible for dilating the airway. These muscles are mechanically linked with the diaphragm breathing muscle. But if you're breathing hard and fast and shallow through an open mouth, which typically when you mouth breathe, that's typically the breathing pattern, it reduces recruitment of the diaphragm. Breathing becomes more upper chest. With reduced recruitment of the diaphragm, it reduces lung volume. And with a reduction of lung volume, the throat collapses more easily. That's one aspect. Mouth breathing also is trauma to the upper airways, dries out the upper airways. That can contribute to inflammation. Inflammation then is contributing to narrowing of the airways. So I think there's a number of factors, you know. Um, and I really feel as well with, with females post-menopause, this regulation of the autonomic nervous system is something that has to be looked into in terms of heart rate variability. Even if, like, and I'm not a fan of any of this. I have the aura ring. I'll tell you my story. I couldn't even get the damn thing hooked up to my phone. <laughs> so I paid three or four hundred dollars for an aura ring and I didn't even get one go out of it. And then I got leaf HRV from my wife for Christmas. I used it twice and now I've lost it. So that's where it goes with me with technology. It just doesn't work. So maybe there's plenty of people out there like me. Listen to your body. Listen yeah. to your body. And the one thing about breathing is you, you can kind of look at breathing from a number of different perspectives. By breathing light, it's very important because it actually helps to improve blood flow and oxygen delivery, but it also stimulates the vagus nerve. And this is what's been overlooked as well. Oftentimes in, in resonance frequency breathing, you know, when the emphasis is on slowing down the respiratory rate, what's forgotten about is the volume of air that one is breathing. And breathing light is actually quite nice to do. You know, it's a little bit uncomfortable at the start because the feeling of air hunger is not, it's not particularly nice. But there's something very important about just putting your body into a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of discomfort. And it's almost that you're training your, your brain to deal with that little bit of a stress. And during the discomfort, your stress levels can increase a little bit. But after you finish the exercises, your stress levels decrease and your overall vagal tone has, will be shown to be increased, depending on whether the individual has understood the exercises. And of course, we don't want a stress response, but, you know, a little bit of stress is OK, but we don't want that big stress response whereby a person is reducing their breathing volume. They have involuntary contractions of the diaphragm. 
then it's gone too far. So the breathing light is very important, but I suppose the foundation is going back to nose breathing because without nose breathing, we're not going to be getting any of it, you know? Yeah. No, it seems as though what you're, when you interview, you've described this in class before too, is, and the way you described that, how we have this you know, slight stress and we adapt, right? It's yes. good to have a little bit of stress. So to me, it reminds me a lot about hormesis and just, just like exercise or fasting or any kind of this, you know, ice bathing, mild stress. If you did a lot, then of course it's not really good, but a little stress helps the body adapt. And so that makes perfect sense to me. And you've mentioned also, you know, we, we, I think if you haven't got it yet by now, we need to be nose breathers right? This is the first thing I teach and anyone is if you get nothing out of this, just breathe through your nose. That's, you can yes. remember that, right? And it's free. <laughs> it's free and it's easy to, to remember, right? It just kind of all starts there. And then we go into the breathing light, which I'd like to explain too, as well, what that means. But before we do that, I, I would like to talk a little bit about insomnia, because I think, you know, many listeners here are familiar with that. It's a very common uh, symptom or thing to go through as you pass through menopause. And actually, in my gerontology class, I did a paper on sleep, menopause and dementia. And I originally wanted to do it with, uh, you know, incorporate the breathing. And I reached out to you, like, send me the studies, but there are just none. I couldn't find it. So I did find a lot of research on menopausal women and insomnia. And I found a lot of research on the correlation with poor sleep and dementia. And I kind of put it all together. And although we can't conclude that menopausal insomniacs will get dementia, but we see a lot of bi-directional correlations, not to mention Alzheimer's and insomnia affect women more than men. So it is some very concerning in our population, people who are mostly listening to this. So, and there's a 2015 study by Schaefer and Wood showing that between 40 to 60% of women uh, who are passing through menopause complain of poor sleep, like with insomnia, like patterns. So, so personally, this is a big deal. And um, I'd love to, to talk a little bit about um, breathing patterns. You know, what can you tell us about breathing patterns? Because this um, helps, obviously you, you tied it all together. It, it's, it's poor sleep, poor breathing patterns, the stress, you know, all of this, it's never just like one thing, but the breath kind of ties it all together. And, and in your book and in our classes too, you talked a little bit about, um, breathing patterns, differences between men and women and, uh, and also breathing patterns, perhaps between peri and postmenopausal women. I'm not sure if you have information on that, but maybe we can discuss the women versus men first and then talk about why we need to learn how to breathe to, to save any risk of dementia or, or issues like that. Let's get some good sleep. I know I put a lot of questions in there. Sure. <laughs> if I just walked you around. Hey, I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. I suppose the greatest difference in breathing, well, women will have smaller airways anatomically than men. So it takes women, especially during physical exercise, greater work to draw air into the lungs because of the turbulence, just because the airways are smaller. 
um, because of the, the size of the female versus the size of the man. So that's one aspect that should be considered, especially during physical exercise, that for the female to draw air into her lungs, she has to work much harder. The second aspect for younger females, more so than the older females, as because of the monthly cycle and the changes in hormones. So post-ovulation, uh, mid-luteal phase, there's an increase in progesterone and estrogen. And progesterone is a respiratory stimulant. So it's, it stimulates breathing. So breathing will become faster and harder post-ovulation. But this, and this, this actually, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I always get confused with this because the way you've explained it and the way that studies seem to show is that Yes, just like that, it's the progesterone that makes women breathe harder. But progesterone, as I understood, is the 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 chill out hormone. It's like the you know the, the one who makes you feel calm and relaxed. And in fact, women who are taking HRT, they always say, "Oh, I sleep better when I take my progesterone just before bed because it just chills me out." So I can't understand that disconnect. To me, it seems like a disconnect mm. there. It does most definitely. And the study is looking at HRV. There's a lot of very inconclusive. You can't really draw a conclusion. But I think if, if the one thing that we do see relative to progesterone is that researchers will typically show it to be a respiratory stimulant. Now, when your breathing is becoming harder and faster, what you're saying about calm states, well, if your breathing is harder and faster, you're, you're less likely to be calm. So there's something going on there that we haven't quite joined the dots, mm-hmm. but it's during that phase as well that pain thresholds lower and pain perception increases and fatigue, anxiety, and females who meet the diagnostic criteria for fibromyalgia, they can meet it post-ovulation, but they may not have it in the earlier part in the, the, the monthly cycle. Um, you know, I think there's a lot that needs to be investigated in terms of female breathing, even though this has been known since 1915. And the, also a 2006 paper looked at the symptoms of PMS and they found that the females with the greatest symptoms of PMS had the greatest sensitivity to carbon dioxide. So they're very sensitive to the gas carbon dioxide, which is the primary stimulus to breathe anyway. But if you have somebody who is very sensitive to carbon dioxide accumulation and during the monthly cycle, they have this respiratory stimulant and you're combining both and then you're, it's going to be contributing to these symptoms. Most females, of course, are not aware of it. So that aspect of it in the younger female and then post-menopause when progesterone levels off and estrogen levels off, this, the real risk seems to be sleep disorder breathing. And one of the questions that you would have to ask is that, again, it's coming back to the, the autonomic nervous system, the dysregulation of it. If you're in an increased sympathetic drive, it's going to impact your sleep. But if you're having poor sleep, it's going to feed into the increased sympathetic drive. So it's almost that it's a vicious circle. So where do you go with it, you know? Like in terms of insomnia, there's two times it can manifest. The first is that the person has difficulty falling asleep. Now that can be due to overstimulation. And we are now living, of course, and I don't need to say it, in a time that there's so much information overload. Emails, like even in the conversation that I've had with you, and I said, I'd love to. I'm thinking now just getting somebody to answer my emails and I'd run 100 miles from them and answer no emails for the rest of my life. And that would be absolutely wonderful. And, you know, this is where it's at, that we would think in today's modern lifestyle and age that everything should be getting so much easier and we should have less work to do. We're overwhelmed. There's so much stuff going on us. 
There's a very good book that came out. I don't have a copy of it here. 4,000 Weeks. Stuff that we all know about. But you know, it's when you read a book and you're kind of going through it and you're saying, yeah, that's exactly where it's at. So emails are overwhelming. People have so much pressures. So how can you downregulate? And we can do that through the breath. And we can do it by taking 10 or 15 minutes out, lasting at night. Even if you're watching maybe a little bit of soft TV, maybe using blue light filter glasses and really slowing down the breath. But slowing down the breath to the point that you have that a tolerable air hunger. So you've got slow breathing, nose breathing, low breathing and light breathing. And if you can bring in the three together, it's very important to help down regulate. You'll, you'll experience increased water saliva in the mouth. You'll also experience getting drowsy. And people often yawn as well after a few minutes of doing the exercise. And that's conducive because if you have increased watery saliva, your body is ready for the digestion of food. So you're in that rest and digest response. Now, of course, how many people have their mouth open during sleep? We would definitely estimate it's about 50% of the population. And as I say that we have to estimate it because there's been no studies that I'm aware of. We have studies with people with obstructive sleep apnea. And out of 95 individuals with obstructive sleep apnea, 35 of them were solely nasal breathers. And the rest of them are mouth breeders. 60 were mouth breeders, either partially or solely. So I spoke about increased watery saliva as being a sign that your body is going into rest and digest. But maybe there's also a feedback there that if you have a dry mouth, what's it telling the brain? And I remember reading a book by Lynn McTaggart. I can't remember what the name of the book was. She spoke about an, uh, a consultant surgeon in Spain who had done 3,000 operations with, without anesthetic. And his main requirement for his patients was that they had increased watery saliva in their mouth because it wasn't just that when we are relaxed, we've increased watery saliva, but when we have increased watery saliva in the mouth, could there be a bidirectional feedback to the brain that everything is okay? Now, coming back then to our breathing pattern with overstimulation, if we have a fast exhalation during rest or during sleep, the brain interprets that things are not right. And the brain is here to protect the body and the brain will activate a fight or flight response to get you out of that situation. But during sleep, you don't want the brain arousing you from deep sleep. So if you are breathing faster during sleep, and it's the fast exhalation especially, but they typically will go hand in hand, fast inhalation, fast exhalation. But it's the exhalation, the speed of the exhalation, which will influence whether we are in this relaxation state or stress state. And if we have fast breathing during sleep, the brain will arouse the body out of that deep sleep. So that's the most challenging time for insomnia because you're after having four or five or six hours of sleep. You wake up at three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. You're half awake. You can't fall asleep. You're half awake. You can't get up and you're half asleep. You can't, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're in limbo. And I suppose most people then they're lying there at five o'clock in the morning and they're starting giving out to themselves and they're feeling stressed because they know they have to go up at seven. And if they don't fall back asleep so readily, they're going to be exhausted waking up. This is also a very good time to connect to the breath. And when you're lying there, bring your attention onto your breath and into the body and start slowing down the exhalation. Because when you're slowing down the exhalation, you're telling the brain that everything is okay. And whatever chance you have of going back to sleep, at least you have some chance. Now, it's not always easy. It can be challenging enough, especially when you have a lot going on in the mind and when the mind is racing. And I suppose the time to do this is not necessarily when you're lying there. Of course, do it when you're lying there, but bring it into your everyday life. You know, there's, there's not enough talk about this even, 
that we are we're very much trapped in thought, we're very much caught in our heads, we're very much our attention is so much in, in the minds that we're we're consumed by thinking and that we can't get out of it. And we can't get out of it during the day and we can't get out of it during sleep. And you know, you can imagine even going to a beautiful restaurant and somebody puts the most magnificent meal out in front of you. The individual who is trapped in their head, they don't see the meal. They don't taste the meal. They don't smell the meal. They don't appreciate the meal because they're stuck in thought. In order to appreciate that meal, you have to take your attention out of the mind and just simply put a three-year-old kid does, use our senses. You know, we went to school as kids. We were told that we have five senses as human beings. We have sight, we have taste, we have smell, we have hearing, we have touch. Use our senses. How can we bring our senses to the food? Look and really appreciate it, bringing our full attention visually onto the food. Taste and bring all of our senses to the food. Smell, we appreciate the food. So the individual going to a Michelin star restaurant, or it's the person that's stuck in their head is wasting their money. They might as well be going to McDonald's or somewhere. <laughs> you know, and it, this is, but I think this has got a broader implication because very little attention has been that, you know, this would have been the role traditionally of spirituality in the church. And obviously there's a demise there, which is fine, but there's a void. There is a void there. And education is, is not necessarily addressing this issue. It's far from addressing it. Education is only doing one thing. That's to get us out into the workforce so that we can generate plenty of money and pay tax to the government. That's pretty much what education is doing. So we, we need an education whereby we're trained to deal with the stresses and strains of daily life that we're better put out there as individuals. And the one thing about breathing is that we can change states. So the female who is insomnia at night and she's in this increased stress response. And listen, we're all going to have it anyway, from time to time. But it's when it's chronic, it's a problem. And the one thing about through the breath is that you have some chance of helping to bring a balance, you know, and going, having the mouth open during sleep, as I spoke about, is a big problem. We have to have the mouth closed, breathing in and out through the nose. If our breathing is off during the day, our breathing is off during sleep. And if our breathing is off during sleep, we have increased resistance to breathing. So even in increased resistance, if breathing is more difficult during sleep, the brain is also going to arouse us from sleep because if we're stopping breathing and having a regular breathing, we're also going to be having faster breathing. So say, for example, a person has a reduction in the flow. They have a partial collapse of the upper airway. So this is collapsible. And say we'll say it partially collapses. That's going to cause a resistance to breathing so that when the airway does open, breathing is going to speed up. That can arouse the person from sleep. Snoring can contribute as well because of resistance to breathing to arousing us from sleep. Too much clothes, too many clothes. There's also association with obstructive sleep apnea and hot flashes that you can see that significance. I don't think in, in female postmenopause we can isolate sleep at all. I think sleep and, and what's going on there is something really, really strong, that link there. And yeah, so in a nutshell, like what would I say? I would say in and out through your nose during wakefulness, in and out through your nose during sleep, being conscious of taking your attention out of your mind. And it was just, you said that you had somebody there and they didn't have the time for five minutes to spend on their breathing, you know, and that's, we have to consider, is this what life is all about? You know, we don't even have five minutes to give ourselves. What a state. Can you imagine the cat saying that? The cat has no problem. The cat knows when to take time out. The dog, 
with two dogs out there with two cats, they know when to take time out. So, you know, they had, they know what it's all about. We don't, we're supposed to be the intelligence of the species. We have it all messed up. Take time out, even if it's five minutes and it will actually help productivity anyway, because if we're in that increased sympathetic drive all the time, the human body eventually is going to catch up on us psychologically, but also physiologically. We cannot deal with chronic stress. Chronic stress is going to contribute to inflammation. And that has been known. And also with improving vagal tone and stimulating the vagus nerve, you're going to help to alleviate inflammation. If you look at the, the work of Kevin Tracy, a neuros, neuroscientist, I think he's based in New York, but uh, he was stimulating the vagus nerve. I think of a rash. And he found that by stimulating the vagus nerve, it could stop harmful inflammation. And his, his colleagues apparently were outside the, in the corridor placing bets that he wasn't going to do it, but he did it. And then he found that by stimulating the vagus nerve with people with rheumatoid arthritis, he was able to help alleviate the symptoms of and the inflammation of rheumatoid arthritis. So they were stimulating it electronically, but through breathing, we can stimulate it through cold water immersion, through garden, through humming, little techniques. There doesn't have to be anything extreme in this. Breathing techniques, some of them have taken off specifically because they're extroverted techniques shouting and roaring and big heavy breathing and jumping into a nice bath for five minutes you know because it gets attention whereas the breathing techniques that's subtle as the introvert techniques bring your attention inwards very very nice place to be there's a there's a role for introverts in this world as well even though 75 percent of our leadership positions are filled with extroverts because the extroverts can shout and scream and let everybody know what they're doing it's the introvert that's in the corner that's creative, that's thinking things through, that's not going to run into risky situations. So in breathing techniques too, there's an extroverted breathing technique and there's introverted breathing techniques. The introverted one is the one you don't see, but the one you don't see is the one to watch out for. Yes. I always tell my clients, you know, let's think about ninja breath, right? It's this, don't see it. You wouldn't know it's coming. You can't, mm. you don't feel it. You just very ninja-like. So I, I did, I have checked very, very different types of breathing with my O-ring and you guys who have one of these or any kind of device, check different types of breath work techniques, and then do the one that we recommend, which is the light, the light breathing, low breathing, inhaling for four, exhaling for six. You can try that, just try to slow that cadence and see But when I measure it, always the auction advantage is much higher HRV than others. I don't know, you know, I've, I've tried different types, but it almost all the time, it does increase the HRV quite significantly for me personally. And I, so I'm, I'm this is, this is the first technique I usually teach people because most of my clients are stressed out and need to sleep and all that. So, but you have so many other ones. I mean, the oxygen advantage, I think you had about 12 or so, and now the breathing cure, you had over 20. So you keep adding on to it. It's not just one, there's different, different types, but, but I really would like to, um, explain, if you can explain very quickly, like a takeaway, we've talked about insomnia, the, the sleep apnea and, and sleep dis disturbances. So what can a woman do who's in, who's going through these, any of these things, how can she learn how to breathe? Can, is there a way we can explain them very, very quickly, what to do when they need to learn how to breathe on like functional breathing, let's say every single day, what do they do? Well, I'd say even now, 
you know, if you've got five minutes, sit back into a chair, you're nice and comfortable with it, do it in your own environment. And at least in that, you're going to be feeling a little bit safe. Bring your attention onto your breathing, have your mouth closed, breathing in and out through the nose and take a very soft and subtle breath, very light breath coming into your nose. You could count it, but probably maybe starting off, just work on softening the breath. And don't worry if you're breathing chest and using the diaphragm. And you're taking a very soft, gentle breath coming into your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation. And then a very soft, gentle breath in and a really relaxed and slow and gentle exhalation. And just focus on generating a little bit of air hunger. So you're focusing on the biochemistry of the breath. And just see, does that change the saliva in your mouth? Do you notice that you've got increased watery saliva in the mouth? Do you notice if you're improving the circulation in your fingers, if your hands are getting warmer? This exercise alone is so simple that it also stimulates the vagus nerve to help bring that balance. Now, after a while with that exercise, you could be doing it for three minutes here, three minutes there, 10 minutes before you go to sleep at night. Make sure that your mouth is closed, of course, during sleep. And some people, though, with anxiety, they don't like bringing attention to their breathing whatsoever. So what can they do? Go for a fast walk with your mouth closed. That's all you have to do. Because even then, if you go for a fast walk with your mouth closed, you will have an increased carbon dioxide in the blood. You know that because you have an increased sensation of breathlessness when you go for a walk with your mouth closed. And the increased carbon dioxide in the blood will help your breathing to become lighter after the physical exercise. So what, what our overall goal is to bring light breathing into one's way of life. Light breathing and slow breathing and low breathing all goes together. But maybe focus on light breathing first. And when you're feeling comfortable, just softening the breath and lightening the breath and you have that little bit of air hunger, then you can bring in slow breathing. Now, of course, you could bring in breathing in for four seconds and out for six as part of your light breathing. Suppose the only thing is, I'd say, Zora, is if somebody has a low bolt score, you might find it a little bit challenging. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, somebody has, the, if say, because we remember with people, the feedback Mount Sinai Hospital is, is a hospital in New York, and apparently it's doing breathing exercise for people recovering from long COVID, and it's using the 4-6, which in theory is making brilliant sense because they, the doctors there are understanding that they need to bring balance in the autonomic nervous system. But the problem is, if you have long COVID, your, bro- your boat score could be three or four seconds, and that your boat score is simply the length of your comfortable breath whole time. So you're taking a normal breath in and out through your nose, you're pinching your nose and holding your nose and you're timing it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe? And when you let go, your breathing should be fairly normal. So if you have somebody with, that are, that's feeling quite stressed out, you know, they, they could have a low bolt score and bringing in four, six breathing is a wonderful technique, but it just might be a little bit, a little bit too much too soon. Start with the light. When you're comfortable with that, you could try breathing in for four, very light breathing in for four seconds. You don't need to hear it. A very relaxed exhalation for six, because when you slow down the respiratory rate to about six breaths per minute, it's an optimum respiratory rate for helping to stimulate the vagus nerve. You know, this nerve that's wandering throughout the human body and 80 to 90% of nerve fibers are from the body up to the brain. And also on that slow exhalation, we're telling the brain that everything is okay. And all it takes is two minutes. You know, we get into a stressful situation during the day. Our breathing naturally will get faster and harder. We go into that hyperventilation. Always think of the exhalation. So you're feeling a difficult situation and you're feeling your breathing is getting quick. Bring your attention inwards and start slowing down the exhalation. 
Take a soft breath in through your nose and a really slow and relaxed exhalation. And by slowing down the exhalation, your body is telling the brain that everything is okay. And the brain will send, sing- send signals of calm accordingly. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important. And I would say is to start off with easy situations. I use an example. I gave a workshop for corporates. And I have one this evening as well in terms of awareness. But if, for example, you know, we wait until a difficult situation and then we want to put our attention onto our breath, it's probably too late. Use small situations that you become comfortable with. Watching television is a great way. You know, there's going to be soap operas that are there. Soap operas are kind of a, a microcosm of human life. People are screaming and shouting and roaring and crying and all that stuff that's going on. When you're watching the soap opera, bring your attention inwards. Can you hold your attention on your breath and in the body? And you're seeing all of this attention going on the TV screen. And then when there's a difficult situation in your real life, which sooner or later it can happen, can you bring your attention inwards? So use the, use the soap opera um, as a means of training, training the brain, training your ability to hold your attention, taking your attention from the front of the mind to the middle or to the back of the head, not to be holding the attention in the critical thinking part of the mind. Bring it inwards, bring it into the center, bring it to the back of the head, hold it there. When you hold it there, the critical mind starts quietening. And when the critical mind starts quietening, then we can help to, to deal with our stress response. Well, this is a wonderful tip. I'm like just chilling out right now. My breath is so low right now <laughs> doing it with you. But I, I, if everyone can find so many videos uh, on YouTube uh, that you've made, you've given so much, there's so much free information as well. And I totally encourage people to just get the book and you can even do an audio book and, and, and you've got the exercises there as well. Before I open up to the question and answer, I want to take a moment to let people know that Fleur, who is here with me on this call and I, and uh, Georgie have started a menopause breathing study. And uh, we want, we're looking for a few more women who want to join the study because we'd like to have a big, bigger group. If you want to do that, please go to the Facebook group and just Top in menopause breathing study, and I'll have it in the notes too. So I just didn't want to forget that because I, if you, if you want to learn these techniques, it's free in exchange for your data and your information and your feedback. We will give you free instruction. And I swear this will, will be very life-changing for many of the women who are here. Now, I would like to ask anyone here, if you have questions, I know you do, um, or would like to make a comment, or if you've um, learned some of the techniques, please unmute. Well, I'm just really grateful to be here. I am so grateful to have found Patrick and these exercises because they've made such a difference in my life. And yes, as a dentist, absolutely. I feel like we're at the front lines of being able to see this and to be able to help people. Once you see it, you really can't unsee it. I feel like a broken record every single day (laughs) telling people that they're at higher risk for sleep disordered breathing. And the exciting thing I feel like is that with breathing, especially like Patrick, you were talking about, if you can address the breathing and make it functional during the day, that's only going to help and carry into the night. And these exercises that you teach are exercises that you don't have to necessarily set aside five minutes in the day. You can do it while you're driving to work, or you can do it while you're getting your coffee ready. You know, they are things that ideally, yes, you could set aside that five minutes, but even if you don't have that to focus solely on that, there are ways that you can work it in. And I love that you talk about that in your atomic focus 
book, you know, um, some ideas and the lectures I've heard you give are holding your breath while walking to work, those sorts of things, just to kind of work it in. But I think this is so important because there are so many people that are not diagnosed with sleep disordered breathing because we often think when I start the conversation with patients, they automatically jump to, oh, but I don't have sleep apnea. And they don't realize that there's so many things before you get to that point of stopping breathing at night that can affect your quality of sleep and therefore your quality of life, just like you're talking about. So it's just, it's super exciting to me and I'm so grateful. So thank you for that. Thanks very much, Casey. Super. It's, it's great to see um, somebody in the dental profession actively paying attention to their patients. It's, it's high time that it's not just about specifically dental health, but it's airway health, you know, because, and I would say that the cohort of the population most susceptible to obstructive sleep apnea are falling between the cracks of modern medicine. They are absolutely not getting diagnosed. Men in particular, uh, many women, because we don't typically go to our medical doctor very frequently. So, you know, that's just the way it is, unfortunately, but we do go to our dentist. And uh, it's, it's really high time that the medical doctors recognize the importance of the medical or of the dental industry, you know, for the medical doctor, not just to monopolize sleep because they need help because they're not doing a great job with themselves. Such a great point. We do see the dentist quite a bit, probably more than we see a regular doctor. So that's such a great opportunity. Any dentists who are listening, please get on the ball and then start learning more about, about all of this. Helena has a question. And Patrick, I would like to ask, I understand reduced breathing. I understand uh, for sake, um, the cadence breathing, is it just like another type of exercise? So it's, there is some variability or is it just one of the necessary breathings we always do? Cadence breathing, which is like five, five, six, six. I suppose, Helena, it's, it's not necessarily that you want to be breathing like this all day long. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That you're, it's, it is a, when we look at functional breathing and we look at three dimensions of breathing, we have the biochemical dimension, we have the biomechanical dimension, we have cadence breathing. Each one is separate, but within that separateness, there's overlap and each one is influencing the other one. I think it's important to focus on each individually. And then to bring in the three together. But I remember, you know, whenever I worked with students in terms of bringing the three dimensions, there can be so much confusion at the start. And that's why normally when I'm working with with anybody, the first couple of weeks is all about the biochemistry, just about breathing light. And then we bring in breathing low and breathing slow. So we kind of move on to that. Now, sometimes during the workshops, of course, we bring in all three but people have the video then to go back on. So, but it is always that point that people can only take in so much information, especially people who are new to breathing. And I don't want to give too much information because then there's a risk that the the information is misinterpreted, but they are three separate, but they still have quite, quite, quite an overlap in terms of what they do. So we were talking about autonomic dysregulation. When you breathe slow, you're going to have to bring the body into balance, body and mind, but also when you breathe light, but also when you breathe low and nose breathing is also the piece that's connecting all three together. So they're unique, but related at the same time. 
Hello. <laughs> Hello, Fleur. Going back to um, when you were talking about um, the airways, especially in, in women who are going through perimenopause or menopause, I was wondering whether there's also a relation uh, with collagen, because our collagen levels go down as well. So that influences on the muscle structure. And another thing I wanted to sort of mention as well, you know, with my thoughts of the work that I do with the diaphragm and with posture in low pressure fitness is that also when uh, we lose collagen, which influence around here around the muscle structures, which also um, affects the diaphragm, but it also affects our posture. So then, you know, by having a posture where we're coming down, you know, you see a lot of older ladies who have rounded shoulders and they're getting smaller and smaller. So then that also affects the diaphragm, which also can affect the throat area, which can also affect our breathing. So I was just wondering, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that? I think it's plausible. Totally. Yeah. I remember listening to Dr. Christian Guimano. He's talking about the instance of obstructive sleep apnea with age, and he put it down to loss of muscle tone. So I think it's, it's entirely plausible. You know, another aspect is, of course, if you think about somebody who has some alcohol, their, their risk of sleep disorders increases quite significantly because of the alcohol. What's the alcohol doing to the muscles but relaxing them? So if there's a reduction in the function of the muscles and the muscles then aren't able to maintain the open airway. So anything that's going to impact that, I would agree with you. I think it's totally, yeah. There's also, there's a wonderful technique called myofunctional therapy, which specifically helps to target as well these muscles and to improve the tone and the position of the tongue. And it really goes hand in hand as well, you know. Um, and I'm sure you have your own techniques as well. So it's not just about breathing. We're not going to say that this is the, the full picture. That is, there's other, you know, modalities that should be brought into. I would say hormones. If I, if I can just, you know, have this chance to say thank you, Patrick, you know, for all your oh, support. It's constant um, and, you know, all the free stuff that you share constantly. Yeah, we're all eternally grateful. No, oh, thanks so much, Flora. It's great to have an interest as well. So thanks very much for, for your interest. It's great to see you getting out there. And you spend 17 years trying to put out something and you're starting to happen, see it happen. It's nice, you know. It's a long time coming. <laughs> yeah. Really, it's a long wait. I'm I I just to comment a little bit on floor uh, and your I, I think a lot of the issues we've spoken about uh for women and menopause and breathing and 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 stress and anxiety, this is yeah, hormone fluctuations wouldn't be unusual. I think that must play a huge role in how we're breathing. Um, obviously it's like you said, it's a vicious cycle, you know, we're stressed and then we have poor breathing habits, but the poor breathing habits can make us more stressed. It's it's a bi-directional way. So just learning some of the basic uh, techniques, um, really, I encourage people to Google you, to look at your website, to buy your books and to keep your mouth closed at night. You, we didn't discuss uh, the myotape, but myotape is a way we can make sure we're keeping our mouth shut all throughout the day or the night. But I, I sleep with that. I really encourage my husband to, because 
I sleep better when he has the myo tape on and it's a tape where, you know, people might go, oh, that's weird to, why would you tape your, you know, I'm scary, but actually the myo tape is made with a little hole in there. And then it's the tape actually is, is gently reminding your mouth to stay shut. So, um, you know, any, any, anything you'd like to add to that in terms of the myo tape? Yeah, I suppose I could show it. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> now this is the older one. So it's an, it's, it's an orange color. And then we change it to nude skin color. Now we're changing it to blue. This is all based on feedback. So we don't know if we're going in the right direction or wrong, but we're, we're taking the feedback of people and oh, we're changing. They didn't, like, they didn't like this color. So, oh. but here's the functionality of it. You stretch it about 30% or pull slips together because of the elasticity. I think it's especially important for people with anxiety. People with panic disorder, two to three times more females have panic disorder than men. Females are much more prone to TMJ disorders, temporomandibular joint disorders. So there's, you know, clearly something going on there. And panic disorders can be very much influenced by poor biochemistry of breathing. Where can somebody get the myotype? There's so many places. I don't know where. Yeah, it's, it's in many places. It's also on myotape.com. Mm-hmm. That's myotape.com. Myotape.com. Cool. So any last questions before we let Patrick go? Because I, I still have like a billion and one, but he has to leave. I know I don't want to take any more of his precious time, but you guys have the opportunity. Helena has one more. Yeah, I just would like to thank you because I'm really selling a lot of myotype here in Czech Republic. Oh, wow. I'm Great. speech therapist and the children want it and there's parents want it because uh, some of them, they are mouth breathers. So it's great. Yes. Thank you so much. Great, great. We should have mentioned the importance of speech, speech and language pathology as well, because I think it's one one profession which gets it. Mm. I, I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful because I knew about breathing from myofunctional therapy, but I didn't mm. knew such a miracle you told us. I'm still learning a lot, but I love it. It's I had the boy and nobody helped, no doctor helped him with migraine and your breathing did help. So it's such a nice um, um, human stories. You can help with breathing. Thank you. Well done. Very grateful. I do have to share a testimonial that I was blown away by because this group that we have, I created a WhatsApp group to study for the, the oxygen advantage test started out with just maybe five people. Now we got about 30 of them. And there was one man, um, uh, I can't remember, I think it's Steve. And he shared that he's probably about 60 and he, his wife passed away with Alzheimer's. Unfortunately, he had a lot of stress and he was programmed to get a hip surgery and COVID happened and he couldn't get his surgery. So um, to alleviate some of his depression and and just do something, he uh, decided to read your book and practice every single day your techniques. I think it was after six months, he started to see improvement with his hip. He had no intention to improve his hip. It was just purely to try to lower the stress and do something. And I think, yeah, so as, as the months went on and on and on, he didn't need to have the hip surgery anymore. And he that's then he became one of your um, students and he learned more because he just was blown away and it was an amazing story um because how many people have hip and or knee or other back issues which we you talk a lot about as well and through simple breathing techniques you know of course it's not going to happen in a day it took him i think six months before he saw progress and he was doing this every single day so i just had to tell you i don't know if he's ever told you that but i was i was blown away by by that story 
That's amazing. Yeah. One other thing that I thought was very interesting, and maybe you could confirm, I don't really know. I, ha- I get PRP injections where they pull out your blood and spin it in a centrifuge, put it back inside your, my, my hip or my knee or whatever issues I have. And, uh, and I had about 12, 12 injections in my life. Same doctor. He says, always says my blood's great. And you know that, but this last time, this was uh, right as I was learning from you during our classes, that, that intense one week. And he starts getting really excited. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Get your camera. You got to see this. And I said, what, what happened? And he goes, look at your blood. I said, what, what is it? And he said, look at all those bubbles. I said, what are those bubbles? He says, that's oxygen. And I, and I said, well, this is the week I've been learning all the breath work techniques. And when you explain, you've explained, we haven't talked much about it on here, but this is oxygenating your blood. And I took a video of it eventually because I thought it was mind blowing. I said, do you think it's, it's that, you know, because it's, he's never said that before. And he said, this is the best day to do your injection because we want your blood to be oxygenated. So, um, that was a really interesting story. That was one of my personal experiences. And I thought, gosh, anytime I'm going to, you know, do any kind of, <laughs> any kind of injection or just in general, this is why we want to oxygenate the blood, oxygenated tissue, the blood goes great to the tissues, bring all the nutrients to the cells and they function better. And this is where we didn't really go into it, but you, you guys will for sure. will read the book and watch all the videos and you will see how, what we mean by carbon dioxide building up in the blood. And, and we didn't mention the bore effect, but maybe you could, I don't know if how much time you have, you decide if you got time quickly go through the bore effect or not. Sure. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have expected as well the oxygen increasing in the blood in, during the week, but there may be a number of reasons why it can happen. Nose breathing continuously will increase the pressure of oxygen in the blood. This is known since 1988, and the pressure of oxygen in the blood in a study by Swift with individuals who were continuously breathing through their nose increased by 10%. Also, when you slow down the breathing rate, you increase alveolar ventilation and allows gas exchange to take place. The breathing exercise can also help open, open up the airways to smaller airways, which can also help gas exchange to take place. And by breathing through your nose, nitric oxide redistributes the blood throughout the lungs to improve gas exchange. So the mantra, nose slow and low, would be pretty helpful there. So that's oxygen in the blood. So oxygen dissolved in the plasma and blood oxygen saturation. But then we talk about carbon dioxide because we want, of course, hemoglobin to release the oxygen more readily. And this is where carbon dioxide increases. Sorry, this is where carbon dioxide comes in. So carbon dioxide is produced internally by the metabolism. And when we move our muscles, we generate more carbon dioxide. And when carbon dioxide increases in the blood, blood pH drops and hemoglobin releases oxygen more readily to the tissues. And I always think, Zora, it's interesting because if you think of the individuals who will be intentionally taking these full big breaths or deep breaths, in the belief that they're going to oxygenate their body more, which may not necessarily be the case because if they are over-breathing, they're getting rid of too much carbon dioxide and the bond then between hemoglobin and oxygen strengthens. So, you know, there are ideas out there in the Western world and now possibly the Eastern world as well about the benefits of taking full big breaths. And we have to question that. Absolutely. I've turned everybody upside down. I was just um, wondering if I could make one more comment, and I know there aren't going to be children that are listening to this, but everyone has children in their life. 
And if we can change the breathing habits of a child early on to be nasal breathing, that is going to change their entire life. It's going to change how their jaws and face develop and how their airway develops. And it's just such an exciting piece of this too. And Patrick touches on that a lot, but just to put that information out there, it's exciting. Yes, I would agree. I think it's very important. Children or grandchildren, right? This is, I always say that longevity starts in childhood. So, you know, absolutely. But we, we, we totally got off on a tangent, but I want to really thank you so much for your time. If anybody has any questions, they want to reach out to Patrick, please contact him at Buteyko Clinic. I'll put all of this in the, in the show notes, B-U-T-E-Y-K-O-C-L-I-N-I-C.com. Um, you can find loads of information uh, just by Googling Oxygen Advantage or OxygenAdvantage.com. So many resources out there on YouTube. There's an app. There's so many wonderful things. Find him on Instagram at Buteyko Clinic, B-U-T-E-Y-K-O Clinic. Uh, also Oxygen Advantage. Please go if you want to dig in deeper um, on the website. You can find the book um, on the oxygenadvantage.com website. Uh, that's where I get everything. Do you, is there anywhere else that people? No, it's pretty much it. To? Yeah, there's two kind of strands. There's Buteco Clinic, which is more health. And then there's Oxygen Advantage, which is more performance. But Oxygen Advantage is going into body mind. It encompasses that as well. So kind of we've yeah, it's evolving. Everything is evolving. Mm, super interesting. Okay, great. Well, Facebook as well. You're on Facebook, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I actually, there's tons of oxygen groups um, as well on <laughs> Facebook. This is where I found the tribe. But thank you so much, Patrick. Have a wonderful day. And I will be seeing you at more trainings and uh, more information. Thank you for, for putting it all out there and dedicating your time, your life to this, this work that people are really benefiting from and changing their health. Thank you, Zora. Thanks to everybody. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.